0: Welcome to the Stock Odds Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Noble. Our listeners know that trading is challenging. They want ideas. They want to know when and how to hedge. They want to increase performance and lower risk at the same time. We answer those requests by focusing on the odds of the trading game. Operate like the casino, not the uninformed player. Trade with a positive expectation and insulate yourself from those blind sides the market wax traders with. Today we're here with my co-host Rob Friesian and Dennis Dick. Dennis is a proprietary trader and market structure consultant with Bright Trading LLC. He has 20 years of proprietary trading experience, specializing in pair trading, crutch trading, momentum, contrarian, technical and algorithmic trading. His insights into equity market structure have been cited in a number of financial publications, including the Wall Street Journal, Reuters, Dow Jones, and Forbes. Dennis is a regular contributor to CFA Magazine and a member of the Capital Markets Policy Council at the CFA Institute. He holds his business degree from the University of Winter, with a concentration in finance and economics. He is the host of the Benzinga Pre-Market Morning Show, premarket.benzinga.com. How are you doing today, Dennis? I'm doing great, how are you doing? I'm doing good, today's been a good day so far. So, so Dennis, what was your first stock trade?
1: What my first stock trade actually, so we go back all the way to 1995. Um, it was the, the time when the internet was just, just getting started and you saw these newsletters and that people would publish newsletters. And I can remember uh, a newsletter coming out with this net nanny software and the internet was just getting started. And this would have been back on the Vancouver Stock Exchange. So we all start with penny stocks, right? this nanny software was going to be be the software that protected your kids from surfing around and finding inappropriate things on the internet and i remember the symbol was nns on the vancouver stock exchange and i bought it around a buck off of this newsletter recommendation and wouldn't you know always your first trade with that you get attracted to the stock market it's a winner and the thing went up to three dollars in about three weeks and i was like this is the easiest thing in the whole world i'm like why am i not just you know, this, this stock market, this is the way to do this. And I had another friend that was involved with that as well. And we were just you know shocked at how quickly you can make money. So I, I, if I would have lost on that first penny stock, I probably would have been turned off the stock market and maybe had a whole different path, a career path here, but I made money on my first penny stock. And that's really what attracted me into the stock market. So that would have been just at the beginning of university.
0: Yeah, I had a very similar experience back in uh, 2012, 2013, and that's that's what got me going in the markets. But as with the penny stock markets, you know, the first ones, the first ones always the win, right?
1: <laughs> first one hooks you in. It's like the casino; they got a really in.
0: <laughs> so, what were your previous work experiences before you uh, made that first trade that sucked you in?
1: Believe it or not, I did construction, my dad and and my uncle owned a construction company uh, together for uh, uh, 50 years, for a long time. And I started working construction with them as a kid, like 10, 11, 12 years old, just working on the sites. And as I got older, I learned a lot from my father, learned a lot from my uncle. And we um, and we continued to, uh, you know, I I just was working construction and I did that uh, during the summers and after school probably until I was about 22 years old when I graduated from university. And when I I graduated from university, I was like, I don't want to work construction. It's not easy work. So I was looking already for something other than that. And I had a friend of a friend, uh, Rashid was my friend. And he had a friend, I believe his name was Alex, and he was trading stocks with this company called Bright Trading. And they had an office in Detroit. I was like, that sounds cool. I had had a little bit of retail experience, success trading my, parents' money. And um, obviously, I told you the nanny story already. So I was trading retail for about two years, uh, just, you know, on the side with my parents' money until, um, you know, I graduated from university. And then I I went over, met Joel Alconin at Bright Trading in Detroit. And a week later, I signed up. This was right out of university. I thought, you know what, I'll give this uh, day trading thing a shot. If it works out, you know, I'll stick with it. If it doesn't work out, I'm going to go for my MBA. So I decided Mm -hmm. to give it a shot came in and funded my account with the help from my parents. And um, and I've been there ever since. 21 years later, I'm still at Bray Trading.
0: So what were the early years of trading like for you? I can tell you my first couple of
1: weeks of trading were interesting. So the first week of trading, I made money and I was like, oh, I'm good at this, I'm good to go. I made, I think a few, maybe two or $300. We were trading very small size. Bray uh, Trading was always very good. The newer traders would come in, trade a hundred shares. Joel Alcon was an excellent mentor trade hundred shares, get used to it. You have a bad trade, you lose 50 bucks, you lose 80 bucks. You'll stay in the game for a long time. Yeah. And so I was trading small size, just 100 share lots. And I can remember the first week, I think I made two or $300 the first week and I was like, I can do this. And then the second week happened. And on the second day of the second week, I lost on 17 consecutive trades. And I think that was the office record. So you think about the odds of losing on 17 consecutive trades It's like, you're really bad at this. <laughs> so, um, and then it took, you know, a good three to six months before I started to find some consistency in my trading. And, you know, I tried this, I tried that. I had, you know, we had, uh, we were using First Alert back then, which was scanning software, which would look through charts and look for certain setups and patterns. And I would try to trade those patterns. And I'd try and you'd know, make a little, lose a little. I wasn't getting anywhere. And then, you know, we were using scanners and we were doing different size. But where I really started to break through, was after about six months of learning what not to do, I started to realize, you know what, there's a lot to reading this level two, reading, reading the book, reading, you know, where the big buyers are, reading, you know, not so much the charts, but reading where the big buyers are and the big sellers are right from the level two montage. And once I started to understand and, you know, read that book pressure better because stocks really trade in waves, you know, they go up and they go down, but you know, once you can read that, Hey, there's buyers in the market for this stock today. I'm gonna buy the pullback on that stock. That's where I started to have some success. So it was really when I started to focus on the book, the actual um, level two quotes that I started to have success. I never had a lot of success with charts. Um, I do use them. I think they're a good tool in your toolbox. There's a lot of traders that focus on charts. I've always just used it. It's never been my primary tool. I respect the charts, but I've always kind of been a book guy.
0: So when you discovered, watching the, the bids of the book from big buyers, is that, would you say that was your first real edge and you tried to compound yeah. it and get really good and consistent with it?
1: Yeah, and, it, and, it, and back when we, I started I started 1999 with Bright Trading, I mean, institutions weren't using algorithms like they do today. They weren't hiding their orders. If they wanted to buy the stock, they showed a big bid. If they wanted to st- sell the stock, they showed a big offer. And what you have is day traders out there seeing the big bid. And then, okay, well, if I can lean on that big bid for protection. If it's bidding 25 for 10,000 shares, I'll buy a couple hundred shares at 25, 16s We've traded 16s back then. I'll buy it a teeny up, we called it. That's 1 16th a teeny. I'll buy it a teeny up because I know in a worst case scenario, I can quickly hit the 25 bid and get out. So I kind of get like an easier uh, look at the upside on that. And I mean, that still happens today. So obviously high frequency traders are doing this stuff in milliseconds. So the structure has changed dramatically from where it was 20 years ago. But the, the game is still the same. It's leaning on institutional orders for protection to a certain extent. Now, my trading is completely adjusted. I don't do any of that stuff anymore. But back then, you could almost think of you know bright trading of a lot of our traders as like your original high-frequency traders. We were looking, you know, where is the institutional flow, and then just trying to basically trade ahead of the flow that we saw in the book, reading the book if there's a lot of you know of buyers you know, on the bid we're willing to buy the stock. There's a lot of sellers on the on the offer, we would sell it short. So it was kind of like
0: that. It sounds like a massive advantage to have that and to understand that early It was on. then,
1: it's not now. <laughs> yeah. In 1999 so- it was um, for sure that, you know, reading the book, you know, the level two, we were living on the level two. And then the, then the turns in the market, we had Ben Lichtenstein, um, for, uh, he would quote the S&Ps from the pit. So you'd hear all of a sudden the pit would turn and the roar, and you hear all of a sudden there's sellers in the market okay well that's going to start to hit the stocks too there was a lag though back then 1999 it took six seconds actually when i first started it was eight seconds so when you send an order on the new york stock exchange um, you send it to the floor it was eight seconds before we got a confirm and that was going directly to the specialist on the floor nasdaq was instantaneous because it was already using automation but there, the new york stock exchange was using a physical person down there um, back in 1999, they send the orders back for So all of a sudden the market starts to go down in the pit, the New York Stock Exchange would lag a little bit. And we could take advantage of that lag time by selling short stocks that hadn't responded to the S&P futures movement. So early arbitrage is what it, it, was. it was. It was basically you know, looking at the, the arbitrage and we can trade SPY and cues back then as well. Uh, but for the most part, we were just taking advantage of that there was a lag between the New York Stock Exchange and uh, the, the S&P futures pit.
0: So how did you personally adapt when the market started to get more efficient and these legs disappeared?
1: This probably The, the first major adaptation for a lot of our traders and for myself was 2001 when we, we went to decimalization uh, because I think it was 2000 or 2001, I think it was 2001. So about a couple of years after I'd started, we were just coming out of the tech bubble burst and a lot of our traders you know, were trading the 16th and all of a sudden you had you went from 16 pricing increments per handle. So for example, 25 in the 16ths. 25.8, 25, 25.3, 25, 16, 25 and a quarter, there's 16 price, pricing increments in the 25 handle. Once you go to decimalization, there's 100 pricing increments. So what was happening early was you'd throw a 2502 bid out there, somebody go to hitch you, and the specialist would buy it ahead of you at 2503. They called it pennying. And we were getting stepped in front of the time on our orders, and actually, we lost a few traders back then that couldn't adjust to it. Now we figure out, you know, different adaptations and the specialists started to get in some trouble for doing that on the floor. So you start to see it not as prevalent. Um, And then, you know, you had a, a number of years up till 2006, 2007, where I was actually starting to run automation back in 2003, 2004. So again, we were taking advantage of little inefficiencies. I can remember doing like in 2003, 2004, I was trading JP Morgan, Chase Manhattan, doing risk arbitrage, Honeywell GE. Um, also, I would do the Viacom A versus Viacom B. That was, I think, like 2004, 2005. And I was trading the VIA, VIA B almost exclusively there for a while. And at one point in time, I was doing almost 10% of the volume a day on VIA. So basically on the, on, on the, on the voting contract one. So basically if you were you know, buying or selling VIA in the year 2004, there was a one in 10 chance you bought or sold it from me. So, and all I was doing was taking advantage of the inefficiency that the VIAB would lead and the VIA lagged a little bit and I would buy the one and sell short the other, especially on like an S&P futures movement or like a two o'clock when the Fed announced, or 215 it was back then when the Fed would announce interest rate decision, VIAB rips higher, I'd be trying to buy the VIA and sometimes I would get it on for a really good price. I could buy the VIA scratch and VIAB up 50 cents on the day and I'd just be pocketing 50 cents put on the one short the other and then take it off and lag out of it as you will. But um, it was all just little inefficiencies that I was always trying to exploit, those inefficiencies where the stocks are not trading perfectly. But basically, if I look back to my entire 20 year trading career, um, yes, you know, we're in, in looking at you know institutional orders and stuff and respecting that, but a lot of my other strategies were based on relationships. And those relationships being VIA, VIAB, you've got a, a, like the difference between VIA and VIAB is voting rights are on the VIA and the VIAB, and otherwise they're almost identical. So if I could ever buy the VIA less than the VIAB, I would always do it because I'm getting voting rights. And back then you didn't have to worry about um, as much about interest rates and you know, borrows. It wasn't as difficult back then. Now they're a little bit tighter with all that stuff. So sometimes you'll see a VIA really blow out because the borrow became difficult. That never really happened much back in 2004.
0: What are your favorite market conditions to trade in?
1: Volatility, right now. So for instance, when the VIX is spiking up to 70, 80, 90, I love that. The reason is that I'm primarily relationship-based inefficiency trader. So stocks all trade on their own, but they are all related to each other as well. Rob Friesen's done a great job teaching all of his traders over the years about pairs trading. Um, We do that a, a lot. And what a pairs trade is basically is a relationship between Coke and Pepsi. There's a relationship between Delta and UAL. So, Delta comes out with bad news, UAL is probably going to start to follow suit to a certain extent because they might speculate that they're going to have a bad news. Some relationships are, are, are pretty much there, and then other relationships are constantly changing. But I'm still doing some risk arbitrage. Like, for instance, I was trading Ameritrade. Uh, there's a, the, the deal on the table with Ameritrade and Schwab. I was trading that today. You know, as the, the relationship gets a little bit out, I will buy one and sell short the other. And, you know, really what we're doing is just taking advantage of that inefficiency. If Ameritrade starts to tank, Schwab's going to follow suit because there's a merger on the table. These two stocks are linked together at this point in time uh, through the risk arbitrage. So and a trader that just says, no, I just want to get the hell out of a Ameritrade may not be respecting that relationship at a certain point in time. And that's where a trader like, you know, like myself will come in to bring that relationship back in line.
0: So it sounds like that's your dominant strategy, that your go-to play, the relationship. Relationships. Yes.
1: If you were just to like throw me, what kind of trader are you? You know, as people say, oh, I'm a chartist. You know, people say I'm a fundamentalist. I am a relationship based trader. I make my money based on relationships.
0: How long have you been trading for um, up to this day?
1: I've been with Bright Trading now for 20, going on 21 years. So it's been a long time. I started in May of 1999, I guess actually. Uh, next month will be my twenty-first anniversary, so I hope Rob's going to plan me a birthday party there or an anniversary party for my twenty-first. Uh, no, I'm just joking about twenty-first anniversary there. Uh, Braid trading would be, I believe, May fifth of twenty twenty. So I've been with Braid a long time. Again, I've seen you know I traded in the office, I believe, until twenty thirteen, and then I've been trading from home for the last six six and a half years. So it's been a while now. We closed the trade office, and obviously, um, we went you know through. Uh, we've closed a lot of the offices for bright trading now simply because people do it from home and now with covid um i I actually feel like i was the most prepared for uh you know something like this because i've been working from home for a number of years really my day-to-day daily routine is very similar the weekends are a little different but you know monday through friday uh the kids are bouncing around a lot more which is a little bit interesting but for the most part a lot of my uh my day is the same as it was even before the lockdown
0: from your experience from being with bright trading over these years what is the biggest ingredient you see in a person to become a successful trader?
1: 100% discipline. So what you'll see is a lot of traders get themselves into trouble and they don't know how to work themselves out of trouble. You know, on any given day, I may make 50 trades, 100 trades. Maybe on a really crazy day, I might be making 200 trades. So, you know, we're trading quite a bit. So inevitably, you're going to get yourself in trouble every single day. You can't be right 100% of the time. So you've got to learn how to work yourself out of trouble. Again, what I see, and you know, I've seen this through the years, is the traders that aren't willing to take a loss, that will struggle in this business and usually blow out their account very quickly. Um, traders that add to losers, okay, it's got to come back, you know. Well, when it's, it doesn't have to do anything, the markets can stay irrational much longer than you can stay solvent. Famous saying. It applies to day, day trading more than anything. Because obviously, we're using you know, a significant amount of you know, the company's capital when we're trading, so we have to be very protective. So the number one thing, I enter a trade not thinking about how much money I can make. I enter the trade thinking about how much money I can lose. I am really a risk manager. I put my capital at work when I see the risk relatively low or I see myself a potential out. But always enter the trade having a contingency plan. What are you going to do if this trade starts to go against you? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be getting out. And, you know, when you're when you're doing relationship based trading and inefficiency trading, you know, you've got to give it a little bit in the decimal world, but for the most part, a lot of these trades start working out in your favor, um, you know, very quickly, usually, you know, when you're on the right side of the trade because you start making money, you're on the wrong side of the trade when you start losing money. And just because, you know, a stock you know, or even a pair blows out doesn't mean it can't continue to blow out. And obviously, that can lead to significant losses if you're seeing that move and saying it's got to come back. So the number one thing is to be able to admit when you are wrong and be disciplined enough to exit the position for a small loss before it becomes a big loss.
0: So regarding that, uh, what was your most memorable trade then?
1: There's been a lot of them. Um, If I look back, and this was probably a swing trade. So uh, I do all my day trading with break trades. Um, All my short term trading is parade trading, but I do some longer term swing trading too. I have an interactive broker's account. Sometimes I do some longer term, like I'm making a call on this where I think this is gonna happen, potentially to happen. And I can remember during the financial crisis, um, this was before it started happening, you started seeing, you know, uh, this was 2007 and you started seeing it start to get ugly. The market starting to get ugly. And um, I had a few really good trades back then, but I can remember Bear Stearns had fallen from about $80 to $50. But the preferred stock of Bear Stearns was still sitting at par at 25. And, and basically, you know, these things just don't, you know, went back before 2007, a lot of times, you know, it's just interest rates that move them around a little bit. But a 50 cent move for a preferred stock would have been a big move. But I can remember looking and saying, it's not probable that Bear Stearns goes down, but it's possible. And I can short this preferred at par right now for a 6% dividend. That's really what I'm gonna be paying. you And again, back in 2007, there wasn't as much interest rate. So now you gotta look, okay, well, what's the cost of borrow? Sometimes these borrows can be really expensive. It wasn't as much an issue in 2007. So I shorted a bunch of that Bear Stearns preferred stock around the $25, right around par. And three weeks later, Bear Stearns started to collapse and the market started to collapse. And that Bear Stearns preferred stock uh which hadn't moved, you know, it probably hadn't moved a dollar, you know, in years, uh, fell 50%. I got it way too soon. I'm always one that enters positions very well and I get it way too soon. But I can remember I shorted a, a huge chunk of stock and I was covering at 21, $20. And you know, you're making like 20, 25% on a huge amount of money in the course of three weeks. And that was a really good trade. You could say, oh, well what's you know 20%, but it was the call. It was like that there wasn't really wasn't much risk and the return was really high. So, you know, I've had trades where I made 20% in five minutes, you know, and and, that, and those are good trades too, but this was like limited risk. And so the risk reward on that would just be out of this world because the risk on that was really just that, you know, 6% dividend over time because it probably wasn't going to rip up to 25 and a half or 26 because it had never really done that before. So the risk reward set up on that was just so good. And, you know, I had a few other trades like that too, where I was shorting. Uh, preferred stocks of banks early, and me and my friend Chris Banney, we were doing that, and we made a lot of money. And 2008 was my best year, and we were doing a lot of short preferreds back then. But then we were doing uh, preferred arbitrage as well. So it even got you know crazier, you know, once they started, you know, you started seeing preferreds just trade all over the place. I can remember buying some Citigroup preferreds um, down at $5. I remember a bunch of these city group preferreds closed at 12 and we were gapping down. It was a huge down day for the markets. The markets were gapping down 6 7% and they were just selling everything. And I can remember buying one city group preferred at $5 and selling the equivalent one short at 10 and just basically right at the open and basically just making the five point difference because these two preferreds usually traded in tandem together. And literally within 20 minutes, they were right back to, you know, where they were. They were both trading at like eight dollars each. So, you know, you make three points on the one, a five dollar stock making three points on it in ten minutes. You're talking about sixty percent in ten minutes and then showed on the other side. So again, just taking advantage of the inefficiency that that preferred were mispriced relative to each other.
0: Yeah, that's that's an insane gain for that time frame. I guess that's why the markets right now are very similar to the the '08 crash. It's just it's really interesting the way the markets are behaving right now because I don't know if there's a do you do you see the, this turning into a real financial crisis?
1: I, I've said, and obviously I'm on the pre-market uh, prep show for Benzinga. You can listen to that pre-market up benzinga.com. I've said this on this show quite a few times. Uh, we're definitely not out of the woods, and we could potentially. It is on the table that we could potentially be going into financial crisis part two. It is, has potential at this time. It's not probable, kind of like the Bear Stearns Collide back in 2007. It wasn't probable at the time, but it's possible. And it is possible that we could go into financial crisis part two. What would it take? It would take a significant, it would take reopening the economy and then all of a sudden we reopen it too soon and everybody starts getting sick again and they have to close it back down. Because if they have to close it back down, we're gonna be closed down for a long time, potentially until we get that vaccine. So right now we know Georgia's opening, Texas, we're getting the beaches open in Florida, we're gonna get some stuff open. So it's gonna be very interesting to see how the spread goes. Are they opening it too soon? I kind of feel like they are, and I'm kind of nervous about this. But um, you know, the economy is obviously a concern for politicians as well. They're balancing politicians, you know, the politicians are balancing lives against the economy. Um, at this time, you know, with lockdown, you can't have both. They're hoping with their opening that they can have both, that, let, that people aren't going to continue to get sick and we can slowly reopen, maybe using, you know, some, some methods, people wearing masks, staying six feet apart, certain businesses, um, so that could help. But in a worst case scenario where it doesn't help and the spread starts again and businesses have to stay locked down and shut down for a prolonged period of time. Then you start seeing airlines not doing well or potentially failing. You can see, obviously, well, we have an oil crisis already. I don't know if we're going to get away from that. But you know small businesses you know, and not being able restaurants, You know not doing, you could see so many sectors that could potentially be in trouble. That eventually could come and start to hit the financial system as well. If you have enough bad loans on your buck, we know JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, raising their loan loss provisions at this time, they're doing that for a reason, because they know there's some rocky roads ahead. The question is, how rocky is it? And, we, and nobody knows the answer to that question, but I own very few bank stocks in my long-term investment portfolio right now. The reason for that is that this is potentially on the table for financial crisis part two. I mean, really, when you look, you know, how did we get out of financial crisis part one? We threw money at the problem. We kicked the can down the road. Now we're at you know a situation where we're trying to throw money at the problem again. We know the Fed is trying to throw money at the problem again. The question is, um, you know, is this virus, you know, it, it, it was easy to fix back in 2008. It was a financial problem. This is a health problem, so it's slightly different. You can't just throw money at COVID and it goes away. Yes, you can throw money at creating a vaccine. Yes, you can throw money at creating a therapy. You know, we obviously hope some of these therapies and some of these vaccines or a vaccine will eventually come out. But in the short run, you know, it takes time, you know, money will help, but it takes time to fix those problems. So right now the Fed is band-aiding all of these small businesses by providing liquidity, providing capital to some of these businesses, trying to cushion the blow as much as it can until we get the virus under control. If that takes a long time, well, then you definitely could potentially see some of the banks get into trouble and it could lead to financial crisis parties.
0: Yeah, it, it it's just it's crazy what's going on right now, and the uncertainty does create amazing market conditions if you're if you're uh, if you know what you're doing in the markets as a, especially as a relationship based trader. Well,
1: it is. As an inefficiency trader, I had my best month in March than that I have I've had in ten years. And that's really? not that's just because the VIX is higher. As the VIX goes up and a person specializing in relationships and inefficiency and statistical arbitrage is going to make more money. Virtue Financial, the high frequency trader is probably making more money right now. They, they, they said, you know, on their last earnings that they were doing really well. I mean, the stock has done well, too, via IRT. So any trader that trades inefficiencies is likely to make more money when the VIX is at 80 than it is at 12.
0: Yeah. When it's at 12 so do you personally use stop losses
1: i use mental well, I, I don't use physical stops i don't throw very seldom unless i have to i have a trade that i want to hold on and I, I think it's going my way and it's a swing trade and I, i've got to use something very seldom will i use a physical stop i use mental stops but I, again i use discipline so i'm not just going to let something get out of hand um if so, trade's not going my way or if all of a sudden i'm in a trade and it gets bad news i eat the loss and i move on and you know i've had instances i was short selling I was short Celgene when it got taken over um, last year, I believe it was on January 2nd, I great or January 3rd. It was January 2nd, I had a great first day of the year. I was like, this 2019 is gonna be great. And then I had Celgene short overnight. It was just a hedged trade, I was probably long some other biotech against it. And I'd been short from $65 from the previous night. And all of a sudden I looked in the pre-market and it's trading 80 and I'm like 85, 890. 90, I'm like, what the hell? And then you look and you're like, oh my goodness, it's getting taken over and I'm on the wrong side. So I'm short the stock that is getting taken over. So some traders in that instance would be like, okay, well, I've got a, I, I can't take a loss when I'm down 25 points on a $65 stock. And I'm just looking, how do I minimize the damage? So I ended up covering, I believe at $86, the stock ended up going to 94 or 95 bucks but you know so i ate a 21 point loss and i did that probably all thought process in, in about a minute try to minimize the damage as much as you can and you move on and that wiped out a probably a week's worth of my earnings because you had a stock literally get taken over here we are you know picking up you know nickels and dimes and all of a sudden we got run over by the bulldozer that can <laughs> happen that will happen that's why you have to see diversified in your trading portfolio as well i never put all my eggs in one basket if you've got a hundred thousand dollar account I would never bet $200,000 on one stock because that can happen and that can blow out your account. If I had $100,000, I always say, rough rule of thumb, maybe 5 to 10% of your, of your in, in any given stock, but I stay diversified, not only my investment account and my trading account as well, just in case something like that happens. That's the first time I've ever had stock, I believe, taken over on me. I, it, it might have, but, but where, where I've lost, let say, like 50% in a matter of seconds. So it happens. So you've just got to stay diversified. You know what? It was an ugly loss. But because I'm diversifying my trading portfolio, I recovered and I probably made that money back within uh, four or five trading sessions.
0: So wrapping things up here, how has your trading career affected your life?
1: affects your thinking. The way I analyze everything in my life, and I don't know if Rob, if it's the same way for you, but it's risk return. I look at, you know, what's the risk? What's the reward and I analyze even normal decisions and especially in this COVID environment, I'm actually one that I am like sitting and we were me and my wife went into lockdown early before we were even mandated to do that. We had stocked up back in late February on groceries and everything, because I didn't want to have to take on the risk of going to the grocery store. So it's all risk reward. So I analyze even the virus from that. I analyze, you know, daily activities like I'm not a big fan of thrills. I would never do, you know, I would never do skydiving because what if the parachute wouldn't open? Um, You know, I'm not a big fan of, you know, even downhill skiing because what if I break my leg? I'm probably it's probably a flaw in me that I'm overly cautious. And, you know, you think naturally like everybody thinks I'm a gambler because I'm a day trader. It's actually quite the opposite. I'm actually very conservative and I I try to, you know, minimize risk as much as I can. I'm a risk manager and I believe that's why I'm a successful trader, not that I'm a gambler. And I analyze everything in my life from risk management perspective. So, you know, even with, you know, the current conditions that we are, uh, the financial crisis that we're, um, you know, that I talked about that scenario being potentially on the table. I was analyzing insurance and looking at your, you know, your, your brokerage accounts. Um, You know, looking at, you know, I've got a lot of my wealth with BMO Investor line. I'm like, you know, and, you know, looking at individual accounts and, you know, if you read the CDIC insurance, we're in Canada, $100,000 is only in your checking account. The brokerage accounts go up to a million dollars. So you got to analyze and I actually have been moving money around to make sure that if it really got ugly and a bank collapsed, that I wouldn't lose any money. So that's how much, you know, I'm a risk manager. I'm even analyzing it from that perspective as well. And I'm way ahead of this. You know, we're not even close to financial crisis part two. But there's no point to taking unnecessary risks at this time.
0: Well, just looking at things like that is a significant advantage over the average person anyways.
1: Just risk reward. I mean, and even to the little decisions, um, you know, I, I, like I said, I think I maybe overdo it sometimes, but I think it, you know, it's a balance. Like every day you wake up, there's a risk, you know, there's a risk you get in your car and you go for a drive. There's a risk to do this, there's a risk to do that. And obviously, I'm not analyzing all those risks, but I'm cognizant of them, too. So there's risk with everything and everything is reward. So you've got to analyze those risks and make the best decision based on the risk reward profile, even in your day-to-day decisions. And I probably, if I wasn't edge trader, I probably wouldn't analyze stuff like that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, so Rob, is there anything you'd like to add here? Oh, I just appreciate uh, listening to Dennis all the time. Love interacting with him. I'm really uh, excited that uh, he's been part of this whole journey and, uh, and really applied himself um, in all aspects of uh, of trading, but also of serving the trading community by, you know, trying to to do anything that he can to to, to help others, educate others, and um, you know, also sort of lobby for us uh, as traders and, and and for our our environment to be uh, more of a, I would say, a level playing field, if it all can be. Um, there, we, there's a lot of challenges in trading. Um, you know, from the more informed players versus the less informed players, but but Dennis has done a good job trying to communicate. Um, you know how to how to do what we can do. You know, even though there's limitations, but but really how to uh, to focus on you know the the things that we can. So um, I appreciate um, you guys uh, doing this, Dennis. It was a generous amount of time, so thank you for that. Um, Stephen, you did a good job with the questions, and uh, I thought it was a real, uh, you know, v- very exciting uh, uh, sort of fast-paced interview. Uh, came out really well.
1: I talked too fast. <laughs> yeah. No, it, I, you I mean it really. It, it was there was some
2: energy, on. yeah, good energy. It came out really, really well. So hold on one sec.
1: Well, thanks thanks for having me, Rob. I appreciate it, and obviously a lot of these strategies we've learned from you too. You've been a great mentor to me over the years too. Here.
2: Yeah. Go ahead.
0: Okay. Well, thanks for joining us today, Dennis.
1: Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: All right. Thanks again. Bye. Stockods is a stock market database and education platform. Visit stockods.io for more information.